Church, if you could please open up to the book of Genesis, chapter 28. I'm going to start reading in just a moment from verse 10. As you turn there, maybe you are familiar with this poem. There's a poem called Footprints. And in this poem, there's someone who walks through life, and they get to the end of life, and there's this vision, and they're walking on a beach, and they're talking to the Lord, basically. And they say, well, Lord, let me ask you. I look back through life, and I see these two pairs of footprints, my pair, and then I see these moments where there's a second pair, and that's you. But where were you during those times when only one set of footprints was there? Why did you leave? And the Lord says, well, no, I didn't leave. Those are the times that I carried you. So the implication is that the single footprints is not the person that walked, but the Lord as he carried them through life. It's a good reminder that we're not alone, that God carries us through our hardest times. The question I want to dwell a little bit on this morning is, why is it that we are prone to forget this wonderful truth? We know this to be the case, but if we're honest, in the midst of trials and suffering, it's really easy to forget that, isn't it? Or to not feel God's presence with us. The reason is, I believe, because God often manifests his presence to us in ordinary ways. Many times we don't expect that. We expect there to be glam or pizzazz or something powerful, a powerful demonstration of God's presence. And we ignore the ways that he manifests himself in the ordinary avenues of life. So here's our main idea this morning. God's people are not alone. They belong to a personal God who reveals himself in our life circumstances. This morning, we're continuing to trace the fulfillment of God's promise in the book of Genesis, from Genesis 3.15 all the way through the end, the creation of the nation of Israel. And we are looking through the family line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We look at Jacob's life today, and we look how he began as Jacob, and his name changes, and we end with Israel. So this promise is being passed down, and today we're going to look in Jacob's life specifically at God's presence. Hopefully you're at Genesis 28 right now. I'm going to invite everyone to stand together for the reading of God's word. I'll start in verse 10. Just a physical reminder of the posture that our hearts ought to take before God's word. Reverence, honor, and obedience. Genesis 28, I'll read verses 10 through 22 for us. Here's what God's word says. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. 
And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you who have inspired the words that we just read, would you please speak into our hearts this morning the powerful truth of God from the Word of God? Would you use it to continue to make us into the people of God? For your honor and glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, church. You can be seated. So, in contrast to Isaac's life, we see a lot of detail in the coming chapters of Jacob's life. And God's involvement is very obvious, both to Jacob and his family and to those around him. Specifically, we see four ways that God reveals himself, and this is going to serve as our main points this morning as we work through the text. We see God's presence, God's provision, God's image, and God's people. So first, we see God's presence. Now, just as a reminder, why is Jacob here? What is he doing? He's been sent away after he and his mother deceived his father Isaac and his brother Esau out of the blessing of the firstborn. Isaac and Rebekah send him away so that he could obtain a wife not from the Canaanites, but from his own family. And just like Abraham and Isaac, God reveals himself personally here to Jacob through a dream. There's this ladder going from heaven to earth, and the angels of God are ascending and descending upon the ladder. God reaffirms his covenant with Jacob. He says, this will be your land. I'm going to bring you back here, and your offspring will be numerous, and the nations will be blessed through you. And verse 15 is crucial for our purposes this morning. Look with me at Genesis 28, 15. God says, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So of all the things that this dream could mean, and there's been several attempts to interpret the different elements, God reveals to us exactly how he wants us to understand it. He is communicating to Jacob, you are not alone. Even when you leave here, you will not be alone. I will bring you back, and I will not leave you until I have accomplished all of my purposes. Though we don't see God's angels coming to and from heaven to earth, accomplishing all of God's purposes, they are, even around us right now. Though we don't see them, they are there. We see angels reporting to God in Job, chapters 1 and 2, including Satan. They come before God, and when God asks where Satan has been, he responds, going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. Later in the book of Hebrews, we read that angels are ministering 
servants of God. God wants Jacob to see what's happening all the time, even though he can't see it. God is near, and he is working. In the book of John, we see the same image here used by Jesus himself. In John chapter 1, he speaks to Nathanael. If you'll remember, he tells him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So Jesus is using this vision here and saying, I am the way to be near to God. I am the gateway to heaven. If you're not a believer this morning, I'm glad that you've joined us. I want you to know what it's like to be near to God. God's word says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, that we are separated from Christ, alienated. And he continues, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We cannot draw near to God on our own. Jacob could not ascend this ladder to God. It is not for him to do so. It is only through Jesus Christ that we are able to be brought near to God. Our works cannot build a ladder or a stairway to heaven. God has drawn near to us in Christ Jesus. And those who turn from their sin and trust Jesus in faith, becoming his followers, God draws near to them. He forgives their sin and he saves them from the coming wrath. Church, the nearness of God for us is a constant reality because the Holy Spirit lives within us. There is nowhere that we can go where God is not dwelling inside of us. It is a constant, powerful reminder of His nearness. When we gather together as a church, God is near, not because of the building, but because of who is in the building, God's people. When we leave and go back home, God is going to be near. When we go to work, when we're feeling alone, when we hit trials and struggles, when our marriages get tough, when we're unjustly accused by others, God is near. Do not forget that wonderful truth. We see God's presence. Second this morning, we see God's provision. In Genesis 29, Jacob makes it to Laban, his uncle, who has two daughters. The older is named Leah, and the younger is Rachel. Jacob loves Rachel. She's beautiful. He wants to marry her. So he agrees to work for Laban for seven years so that he can marry Rachel. But after that seven years is up, they have a huge wedding ceremony, and we won't get into why the confusion exists. But when he wakes up, the morning after his wedding, he finds out he has not been united to Rachel. He's been united to Leah. He's aggravated, to say the least, goes to Laban, and Laban says, this is our culture. This is what we do. Another seven years, and you can have Rachel. So Jacob does. Now, he has two wives. Despite the messed up family dynamics at play here, God provides a large family for Jacob. Look at Genesis 29, starting in verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. 
And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son, and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son, and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son, and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my servant, Billah. Go into her, so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant, Bilhah, as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me, and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant, Bilhah, conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant, Zilpah, and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant, Zilpah, bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat, of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, That he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages, because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. Now, did you notice amidst all of the corrupt family dynamics at play here, did you notice this repeated reference to God and the Lord? Both Leah and Rachel, in connection with them, this phrase appears, God listened and opened her womb. Eight times in this passage, God is credited either by Rachel or or Leah for the conception and birth of their children. In verse 2, Jacob even asks, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? To paraphrase Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. They all recognize the gift of children is under the control of God. 
He's under control when they're conceiving and giving birth. He's under control whenever they are barren. And they all acknowledge this. Children are a gift from the Lord. From the moment of conception, the life of an unborn child in the womb is a gift from God, and it ought to be thought of as such. I'm not going to lie to you. I've got two months to go. Am I anxious? Yes. Am I stressed? Yes. Am I uncertain how things will play out? Yes, all the above. This is a gift from God. And we ought to think of our children this way. Now that word conception is intentional, and it's not without biblical warrant. I don't know if you noticed another pattern in this passage. Almost every time a child is born, it's coupled with the word conceived. You can go and look for yourself. Conceived and bore, conceived and bore, conceived and bore, conceived again and bore, conceived and bore, conceived again and bore, conceived and bore, conceived again and she bore, conceived and bore. All throughout the passage, in Jacob's family, we see God's provision in conception and birth of children. God provided his family to him. But we see another provision of God, the provision of wealth. Starting in Genesis 30, 25, Jacob asks Laban to leave. Not for Laban to leave, but for Jacob to be able to leave. And Laban realizes that the Lord is blessing his work. And the only reason Laban is getting wealthier is because God is blessing Jacob. So he makes a deal with him. Jacob will remove all the speckled and spotted sheep and goats as payment for staying. And that way his wages can be honest. You can know, oh, these are messed up. These are mine. These are not. These are yours, Laban. So what Laban does is he goes and removes all the imperfect sheep. Takes them away says, okay, here you go. So what Jacob does, it's kind of strange, he carves some sticks and puts them in these watering troughs, and when the flock draws near and breeds in front of that watering trough, the result is striped, speckled, and spotted lambs. A lot of attempts have been made to try to explain this phenomenon in naturalistic ways, but the answer as to how and why all this worked does not lie in the sticks. Look at Genesis 31, verses 7 through 12. Yet your father has cheated me. Now, let me back up a little bit. He's talking to Rachel and Leah here. Jacob has been told by the Lord to return to Canaan. So he gathers Rachel and Leah to tell them, and then this is what he reveals to them. Your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. 
So apparently Laban kept changing the terms, but every step of the way God would provide through the birth of the flock. The secret here to success was not the sticks. I've heard a lot of complex explanations of this also. Well, you know, they say that these animals and these sticks and it does this certain thing and that's why. That's not the answer to why this worked. It wasn't the sticks. The sticks served a purpose to show that something specific is happening. Something has been planned and orchestrated, but it wasn't by Jacob. It was by the Lord. The sticks show this isn't a coincidence, what's happening. You're not just getting lucky here. It's a plan. It's the Lord's plan. So God sent these visions to Jacob, and Jacob just did what God told him and God provided. In verse 16, Rachel and Leah confirm, All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So God has provided Jacob's family, and now he's provided his livelihood, his wealth. But that's not all. Starting in Genesis 31, 17, Jacob packs up and leaves without telling Laban. And three days later, Laban recognizes they're gone. And he gathers up some people and he pursues them. And before he catches up, something happens. Look at Genesis 31, 24. Before he catches up to Jacob, it says, God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream by night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Now, this is a little more than just watch your words. This is more like, I'm watching you. You better be careful what you do. And Laban understands this. He catches up and confronts Jacob. But then in verse 29, he says, It is in my power to do you harm, but the God of your father spoke to me last night. Jacob was afraid of Laban, so God steps in and provides protection for Jacob and his family. And what's crazy is, God does this even though before they left, Rachel stole Laban's household gods and idols. So she is taking these gods with her, presumably to worship them. And then Laban, as he approaches, he talks to Jacob and says, I can't believe you didn't tell me what's going on. Why did you do this? Jacob says, well, I was afraid that you would take them by force from me. And Laban says, well, regardless, I'm here for my idols back. And he searches, and Laban can't find them. Rachel is lying on them and hiding them from him, and he doesn't see them. But God knows where the idols are. God knows exactly where they are. Rachel's got them. And you know what God does? He protects them anyway. He protects them anyway. God provides protection even though they have these idols hidden among them. Do you ever feel like God's provision for you is based on your obedience to him? Like maybe if you were suddenly disobedient, that God would take away his provision and that you'd be left to fend for yourself. That maybe God would remove his hand of protection over you or stop providing for you financially. While it's true that God generally blesses obedience and he generally disciplines disobedience, God's provision is not based on what we do. It's based on who we belong to. Our God is a God who provides 
for his people. Now, this doesn't guarantee that you're going to have children. It doesn't guarantee that you'll have wealth or physical safety. A lot of Christians don't have one, two, or even all three of these. Rather, this is a guarantee that God will give you exactly what you need, exactly when you need it, in order to fulfill his promises. Many times, we are not okay with how God chooses to provide for us. We dwell on what he hasn't provided. We see how he's provided for other people, and we wonder, why hasn't God provided that way for me? Instead of thinking about and dwelling upon what he has provided for us, we think about what we don't have, and we ask why. Do you know why it is that we do this? It is the sin of discontentment. We just are not content with what God has given us. We must learn to be content with what God provides when he provides it and when he doesn't as well. So now God has provided family, livelihood, wealth, protection. Basically, this is everything. God has provided Jacob's entire life. Church, hear this. Every single thing you have, from the clothes that you're wearing this morning, all the clothes in your closet at home, your pantry stocked with food, your vehicles, your job, your children, everything that you have, the breath that you're taking right now is a gift from God. Everything is. We can claim nothing on our own. It is solely the provision of God. And yet we're not done. We see one more example of God's provision in our text this morning. In Genesis 32 and 33, Jacob returns and he meets Esau, his brother. Now it's been a minimum of 20 years. Seven years working, seven years working again, about six years of raising up this flock Yet, even after 20 years, Jacob is still terrified. So he comes up with a plan. I'm going to divide everything that I have into these two camps, and I'm going to just send these gifts and these caravans to Esau. And as I'm approaching him and he's receiving these gifts, maybe he'll kind of be calmed down a little bit. But then if he's not, and one camp meets him, the other camp, while this one's being destroyed, the other can escape. So he's got it all figured out what he's going to do. And as Jacob returns, we see in 32 verse 1 that he meets the angels of God, foreshadowing God's continued presence and provision. In light of that, listen to Jacob's prayer in Genesis 32, 9 through 12. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country. And to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds and steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Jacob is 100% right here. He doesn't deserve an ounce of what the Lord 
has given him. Listen, listen, and feel his disposition. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. He is not worthy, and he does not deserve it. And similarly, Jacob does deserve judgment regarding Esau. But in chapter 33, God provides Jacob with something completely unexpected in light of this prayer. Mercy. Mercy. God provides mercy to Jacob. Esau shows Jacob mercy, and in that mercy, we see yet again the mighty provision of God. And Jacob sees it too. In Genesis 33.10, he tells Esau, I've seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me. The mercy of Esau is really the mercy of God to Jacob. Please hear me this morning. The mercy of God is the greatest need of every person on this planet. God can provide to you family, wealth, and protection. And if you do not have mercy, it is all for naught. It means nothing. It does nothing for you. If that's all you receive from God, you are to be the most pitied person alive. We may not have to fear the wrath of an angry brother, but we have a greater need for mercy. Mercy from the wrath of God against our sin. Just like Jacob going to meet Esau, knowing that death awaited him, we must pray to God, O oh God, I am not deserving of the least of what you've given me in my life. Would you please deliver me from the wrath that is to come? And just like Jacob, the soul who turns to God in repentance and faith will receive mercy. So we see God's presence, we see God's provision. Third, we see God's image. Only it is God's image perverted. God's image perverted. Jacob winds up in Shechem in the land of Canaan. And in Genesis 34, Jacob's one daughter, Dinah, is raped by the prince of Shechem, who is named himself Shechem. Shechem's father, Hamor, approaches Jacob to make a deal so that Shechem can have Dinah to be his wife. Jacob's sons, when they find out about this, are irate. And they trick Hamor and Shechem. And they said, okay, well, we'll make a deal with you. You do this, and then we will come in with you and intermingle, and we can take your daughters and breed, and you can take Dinah, and we'll be a family. But you must do this. You must have all the men in your city circumcised like we are. It's part of our agreement. If you do this, we will do this for you. Well, Hamor and Shechem agree. They have all the men circumcised. And while they are still sore, Levi and Simeon attack the city, kill all the men, take their stuff, take their children and their wives, and leave. Look at Jacob's response in Genesis 34, verse 30. Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, 
You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? There is a tension in this passage. Maybe you feel it. On the one hand, the actions of Levi and Simeon are repulsive. They essentially commit mass murder. But on the other hand, we can emphasize, empathize with their final statement in verse 31. Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? What we see here, in a sense, is justice. Only, it is a perverted justice. What happened to Dinah is not right. It is good that that stirs up within us feelings that justice needs to happen here. Something ought to be done about this. That is good that we feel that. Have you ever thought about why is it that we feel that? If we're all just created, like many secularists say, from the Big Bang at the beginning of creation and everything just kind of evolved the way it does, why is it that we all have this sense of justice? Whether it's perverted or not, there needs to be justice. When we're approaching our deathbed, we feel it. The justice of God is coming for me. It is designed within us. It's a way that we see God's design. What happened to Dinah is not right, and justice must be served. But was what happened really justice? Jacob's family is the covenant people of God, and they took the sign of the covenant, circumcision, and used it to commit mass murder. Surely that is not justice. So rather than being God's image among the foreigners, now they have become a stench to them. There's a time for war. There's a time for judgment here before the final judgment. But that's not what we see here. What we see here is two men taking justice into their own hands and taking something that is good and twisting it and perverting it. God's image is perverted. In a similar way, church, we are called to be the fragrance of God in the world. 2 Corinthians 2.15 says, We are the aroma of Christ to God. Among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. The things that we do or say communicate, this is what Jesus is like. What do our lives communicate to the world about what Jesus is like? What kind of aroma are we giving off? Are our lives saying, you know what Jesus is like? Jesus is impatient. Jesus is cold and calculated. Let me, tell you, let me show you what Jesus is like. Jesus holds grudges. He's a gossip. Jesus doesn't keep his word. He, he does whatever he has to do to get ahead. Jesus expects everyone to be as holy as he is. Or on the flip side, Jesus doesn't care about holiness at all. What are we communicating about God? How are we perverting his image? Now, we've all communicated these and worse to the world. 
What distinguishes a Christian from a non-Christian is not how perfectly we image Christ to the world, but what we do when we fail. Look at what Jacob did and the result of it in Genesis 35, 2 through 5. Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. In essence, Jacob and his family repented. They repented. They turned. And what was the result? God's holy presence impacts the surrounding cities. Look in verse 5. As they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. This is what we've seen in Genesis so far in every single line of the family. The surrounding people see God's hand is on these people. And that is now what the nations are realizing as Jacob and his family are repenting. Church, if we want to impact our community with the gospel, our community needs to see a people who are being changed by the gospel. That's going to be the impact. It needs to see us giving public ownership of our sin and repenting from it. Not a public display of sin and justification for it. That's usually what we want to give because it makes us feel good. Sometimes it makes us look good in front of others. But it is not for our good or the world's good. The world will not be mesmerized by a church that looks just like the world. You know what that communicates to the world? There is no God. You can tell because I'm not changed. Too many of us care more about our image than God's image. We're too concerned about being labeled judgmental and not concerned near enough about God's church being labeled worldly. This isn't a joke. We are God's people, his image in the midst of a world that is dying and heading straight to hell. And we have the antidote. And we share the antidote and we think the world will just take it because it's true. But the world is looking at our lives and saying, it's not true. Look at you. Look at the rest of the church. I've seen how you talk to one another. I've seen how you talk about one another. I'm not buying that. We would rather one another be unholy than to be labeled a hypocrite for pointing out sin to one another. I wonder, when was the last time that you spoke with a brother or a sister in Christ about sin in his or her life so that you might help him or her to repent? When was the last time you confessed sin against somebody? You approached someone and said, I have sinned against you, and I'm sorry, and I'm turning from that sin. If we don't do either of these, there's one of two options. 
Either we are all perfect and there's no need for that, or we're being disobedient. I'll tell you right now, I ain't perfect. When I fail to do that, I'm simply being disobedient. And it is so easy to do, church. Hear me on this. This is hard. This is not easy. But it is necessary if we want to have a powerful testimony in front of the rest of the world. We have, we have to treat sin as seriously as God does. And we have to approach it the way God has instructed us to. Or else we will have no power. Jesus' instruction in Matthew 7 wasn't to leave the logs in your eye and the specks in other people's eyes alone. It was twofold. Remove the log from your eye and then remove the speck from theirs. What distinguishes a Christian is repentance. We have repented and we regularly repent from sin. Do you know what this means? It means that we regularly sin. I regularly sin and so do you. We all do it. We all regularly sin. Or else we wouldn't need to regularly repent. Christians are not sinless. That's not what what sets someone apart as a Christian. Oh, that must be a Christian. Look how good that person is. That's not it. We say that person must be a Christian because that person knows how to humbly turn from sin. In the same way, churches are not sinless. But they are repentant. They help one another to repent. And we can't do that without acknowledging sin like Jacob did here in our passage. So that's God's image perverted. Here's the fourth and final and we'll be done. God's people preserved. God's people preserved. We see this in several different ways. One of the ways we see it is that God issues a name change to Jacob. Jacob's name will now be Israel. First, we see this in Genesis 32, 22 through 32. We kind of looked over that earlier. And then it pops back up here in Genesis 35, 9 through 15. Now, the first time, Jacob is wrestling with God, and God touches the hip, the socket of the hip pops out of place, and Jacob says, I won't let go till you bless me. And God changes his name to Israel, which means he strives with God or wrestles with God. The second time we see it, it's after Jacob makes God's presence known in Canaan, what we just read. God tells him to be fruitful and multiply, but then we see Rachel passes away after giving birth to Benjamin. Isaac dies. We see the generations of Esau, and then at the very end of this, in Genesis 37.1, we see that in the midst of everything, God has preserved his people. Even through death, even through the weird family dynamics, even through this other line of Esau that's growing and becoming a nation, we still have Jacob, now Israel, and God's presence is still being made known in the promised land. And so it is with us. God makes his presence known to us in the ordinary circumstances of our lives. And we are called to make his presence known in our lives as well. So church, may we recognize God's presence and provision in our lives. May we thank him and acknowledge him for all that we've been given. May we remember most of all his mercy to us in Jesus Christ. 
in view of that mercy, may we be a repentant people that we might continually be restored to God's image rather than perverting God's image. And finally, may we trust God to preserve us until that final day when we will see him not just hidden in plain sight in our life circumstances, but see him face to face. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, holy Lord, you are seated on your throne, exalted high above in the heavens. You are surrounded by your ministering servants, the angels who are crying out to you all day and all night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But you have seen fit, Lord, to make your presence known here. You are the omnipresent God, You exist in all places to bless all those who turn to you in repentance and faith. Lord, we tend to forget your presence in our lives. And that leads us into sin. It leads us into despair and brokenness. Lord, but we know that you are with us because you have given us your Holy Spirit He lives within us even now, encouraging us, giving us joy and comfort, guiding us, bringing to our minds remembrance of your instructions. Lord, would you help us to be a source of manifestation of your presence in our community, that others would look at us and not see a perfect people, but a repentant people who are changing our ways constantly. Lord, thank you for being so good to us. You have given us a country, a freedom that many do not have. And Lord, even though we are turning away from you as a country, we are blessed by the things that you have given us. Provision, livelihood, families, protection. You have given us military members who in the past have fought. Some have died and some have lived and are still among us and are suffering the effects of war. Thank you, Lord, for providing for us veterans to fight for us. Lord, more than anything else that we want to thank you for, we thank you ultimately for the mercy of Jesus Christ that we are a people who are not perfect, but forgiven. Remind us, Lord, that even though we are afflicted in life, we are never alone. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.